You're listening to Go with Jamarlin Martin. We have a go hard or go home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. Let's go. Today we have Family Wealth Advisor Tunde Ogunlana. We're going to change it up today and talk about wealth. So you have 17 years of experience as a financial advisor. Uh, you're running your own advisory practice, creating wealth for families, uh, managing wealth for families. Share with the audience what you do. I'd like to say this. We help to create peace of mind in a nutshell. Uh, what that means for everybody is going to be different. And um, I don't mean to sound kind of cheesy or cliche with, with kind of a, a quick answer like that. But the reality is what I've learned over my career is that money is psychological. So at the end of the day, my job is to get to know the family I'm working with and how they relate to money, period. Um, after that, investments, you know, services, things like that to me are all tools that help them meet those goals, whatever those goals that they have as it relates to money might be. So that's really what I do in the end. How often are you thinking about kids within the family and the, and the kind of college planning in terms of the age group, uh, 21 to kind of 35? Um, I would say if that demographic, age demographic is in, within the family that I'm working with, then it's, it's a thought. Um, you know, clearly if, if, if I'm working with a young family that has you know, two year old kid, then I'm not thinking about that age range in that particular, uh, scenario. But, um, we work with families. A lot of the families we work with are entrepreneurs, um, either first or second generation business owners. So where we find that age range might be either the children or the grandchildren of the owners and maybe their interest or lack of interest sometimes in getting into the family business and how that's going to then relate to the family's overall wealth plan and strategy. Okay, got it. Uh, Are you familiar with uh, Jay-Z's lyrics on uh, 444? I believe the track is called uh, Legacy, but he's now putting kind of gems uh, in his music about wealth creation and you know, some mistakes that he's made, but it's interesting that you're starting to see that injected into hip hop. Yep. So yes, I am familiar with, um, the album and several songs. Um, not only legacy, I was impressed with certain things that Jay-Z alluded to in the story of OJ. Um, when it came to talking about art, for example, uh, as an asset class, we we rarely hear, um, Art talked about in general in the financial community, um, unless you're really dealing with the ultra high net worth, um, but even less so in environments like hip hop and more traditionally, maybe the African-American community. So to hear um, not only things like art being discussed, uh, real estate ownership, um, I believe in legacy talked about uh, wills and, and estate planning. So, yeah, it's 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 actually it's great to hear Jay-Z talking about those things and you know, I've heard different um, um, artists kind of throw in some gems here and there. I mean, even I think uh, there was a song in the 90s by Busta Rhymes where he talked about mutual funds and money market accounts. Uh, so I've, you know, you could pick that up over the years, but you're right that Jay-Z, uh, I think, went a little bit deeper than most in that album. I guess after Prince died, reportedly, he didn't have a will and his net worth was uh, $300 million, uh, estimated. Uh, net worth was 300 million and so snoop dogg comes out uh who i'm a big fan of he comes out after uh, prince died and he says 
I don't give a fuck uh, when I'm dead. And he says he doesn't have a will. And so, you know, let's talk, let's talk about this thinking uh, specifically within black America where, hey, you know, you only live once. Spend it while you're here. Uh, or in Snoop's case, uh, why do I care about money? I'm going to be gone. Who cares? Yeah. Uh, you know, what's what's that about? Well, that's that actually, I mean, I, I never knew that he said that. So I'm a little kind of disappointed to hear that, actually. But but it doesn't make me look any different at, uh, at Snoop as a man or an artist. It's just, again, going back to how we started the conversation, money is psychological, period, end of story. Um, so clearly Snoop, you know, has a has a feeling about his money and his wealth. Um, and I guess the transfer of that wealth to whoever, whether it be his kids, you know, a nonprofit, a, a charity, um, that he doesn't seem to care, um, I guess, uh, about the direction of that wealth after he's not here. Um, that's his prerogative. Like I said, I'm a little disappointed to hear that. But I think to the bigger picture, um, from my experience in the business, there, there, there are cultural nuances about wealth. And it's not just African-Americans, it's not white Americans, it's, it's every group. And I think living in South Florida, and, and, and I would say even more so for the purpose of this conversation, working in this industry in South Florida has been very interesting for me as, as someone that, you know, born and grew up in Washington, D.C., more of a traditional American environment, to now we have a true multicultural environment in South Florida. Um, looking at a culture uh, like a lot of the Latin American cultures, uh, from South America. Um, early in my career, when I dealt with people from that region of the world, there was a high mistrust of insurance. And part of it, when you got down to it, it wasn't about insurance or not trusting the insurance company. It was really about the idea people didn't want to talk about their death in that culture and deal with that conversation specifically. I've dealt with other cultures where they feel like things like life insurance uh, is someone profiting off your death? So they didn't want to talk about or, or deal with life insurance in, those, in that in that type of way. And the interesting thing is, like everything else, those cultures come to the United States. But in the United States, we have a legal financial framework that I wouldn't say requires certain tools like life insurance or trusts or wills. But life is a lot smoother, and death, I guess, is a lot smoother, if I can say that, uh, if some of those things are applied. And so that's where the challenge becomes sometimes is taking someone that has a certain mindset and trying to show them and educate them that, you know, you may feel this way, but here's what your family is going to deal with, regardless of whether you think, you know, someone's profiting on your death or not. I'll give you an example. Um, years ago, we had a meeting with someone who had that mindset, and this is back when the estate tax limit was lower. Um, and a real quick caveat for those that may not know, an estate tax is a tax at death um, when you die with a net worth or assets over a certain amount. Right now, as of last year, that amount was raised to $11 million per person. Prior to that, it was $5.6 million. When I started my career, it was at $1 million. So back then, 17 years ago, if you died with an estate over $1 million, basically the IRS at the time was going to tax uh, anything over that amount at 55%. 
Certain tools like trust planning and life insurance can help one's family avoid those taxes after death. So trying to explain to someone why they need life insurance when they come to the conversation looking at it as if you know someone's going to profit off their death, but as an advisor, you're trying to educate them and show them, look, it's not about profiting off your death. It's about the IRS wants tax money nine months after your death, and if your family doesn't have liquidity from a life insurance policy, they may be forced to liquidate real estate, liquidate your business, maybe liquidate a stock portfolio when it's 2008 and market's down 40%. So that's where tools like life insurance can come into play. But culturally, some people don't, you know, they need to be kind of brought to the table to see that. Are you looking for another great podcast? Check out Get a Grip on Life, a podcast interviewing entrepreneurs, social media influencers, content creators, stand-up comedians, industry insiders, and more. Join host Michael Colligan as he finds out what makes these people tick as everyone tries to get a grip on life. Be sure to visit getagriponlife.com for all of their previous episodes, links to social media channels, and more. Or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for Get a Grip on Life. All right, so let's go back to uh, Wills. Why would Snoop want to keep the courts out of this? In terms of, hey, I have to plan that, hey, if I get hit by a bus, uh, you know, I have a stroke or whatever. Why would Snoop want to keep the courts from managing the distribution of the fruit of his labor? Um, so the first answer I'll give you is because he's Snoop, and I'm sure he wants to keep the, court, keep the courts out of everything. <laughs> but um, that joke aside, um, that's a very good question. So I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll break that answer up in a couple pieces. You're right that a will by itself will go through the probate court, which is you know, a court system. One reason why someone like Snoop specifically, maybe more so than someone like me, for example, would care about not having his records going through the court is because everything in the court is public, in the probate court. So, so if he dies, correct. So, so people at Snoop's level, a lot of the high net worth folks out there just like confidentiality. They don't want people knowing what they had or what they didn't have, maybe, because maybe when he dies, you know, it, maybe he won't be worth as much as we all thought, for example. Um, or maybe he's worth a lot more. So that's one reason why a lot of people don't want their stuff going through public record. Now, the way to get around that is by transferring the title of one's assets from an individual name. So from um, Snoop Dogg, I think his name's Calvin something, but Broadus, yeah. So from Calvin Broadus to the Calvin Broadus Revocable Living Trust, for example. Just that simple switch means that those assets now aren't owned by him at his death, meaning his social security number isn't going to be run through the probate court and them seeing all these assets. The assets are now owned by an entity, a trust, so almost like a corporation. So what happens is the probate court would almost see that Snoop Dogg is worth zero at death and all the assets would be piled into his trust. And then his family and everyone else or whoever the trust is left to will know it's in that trust, but none of us will ever know. So that's one reason why um, I guess Snoop wouldn't want the courts. You know, a lot of high net worth people just don't want that type of attention on, on their estate. And to their defense, I mean, there's, there's a whole kind of shadow industry out there of people um, defrauding estates. 
you know, they look in these probate courts around the country, and if they see an estate worth over X amount, they start throwing stuff at it. They'll throw a lawsuit at the estate to try and make money. They'll start, you know, bringing up, you know, that there were kids out here and there. So, you know, a lot of high net worth people just don't want their families dealing with any of that. Um, However, you have to have a will as part of the trust component. And I'll, I'll just keep going a little bit. The reason why one would always want a will anyway, even if you have a trust or don't have one, depending on if one is needed for that particular family, is because people only think of the will as death. I'm dying, and here's a will to say who gets what. The important part of a will, or a will package, I should say, that is often overlooked is the living will. And I'm going through that in my practice right now. We have a, a family that um, good clients of ours and, and good is also not just their wealth, but their close relationship. And we build good relationship over the years with our clients. Um, they were vacationing in Italy this summer, just four months ago. And I get an email from the wife that the husband basically had a brain hemorrhage while they're on vacation. Not too well. I mean, he's in his early 60s. And um, today... He is in a hospital here in Florida, basically brain dead. Um, I believe they're giving him about a year from the time they admitted him to the hospital back here in Florida. And at that point, she'll have to make a decision if he doesn't really wake up, whether she needs to pull a plug or not. Right now, we just got done with submitting all the powers of attorney to the various financial institutions that his name was attached to. So something like his IRAs, his individual retirement accounts. You can't have a jointly titled IRA. So for her to act on his behalf or to know what's going on in the, in the IRA, we needed to send a power of attorney to you know, the companies that have custody of the IRA, which relates to the life insurance contracts. For her to be able to access and talk to the insurance companies directly, she, we needed to send a power of attorney over there to them. So what happens is the living will is important because God forbid, let's say that happened to Snoop Dogg whether he had a stroke or whether, I mean, you know, the guy's obviously travels a lot and is all over the place. God forbid he's in a plane crash or a car crash, but he didn't die, but he's incapacitated. He's, I'm sure he's got such a big estate that someone needs to be able to have access to manage that. And if you're legally incapacitated, how's that going to take place? The other thing that's important with the living will is the healthcare directive. In the event that Snoop Dogg, again, is in a car accident or something and he's rushed to the hospital, and there may be decisions made about pulling the plug or not pulling the plug, someone's gonna have to have that authority. If not, the hospital has the authority. And who knows what decision they decide to make on your behalf. So those are all things that come into play with a will. It's not just the assumption of I'm gonna die and this is. It it just sounds like uh, that the message is you want to plan ahead because when you pass on, you want to leave your family a guide in terms of uh, direction on how you would want uh, your legacy uh, distributed and handled. You know, with most things in life, if you don't plan, uh, it increases uh, dramatically the risk profile for your family, for your kids, where all this stuff was not thought about. Now everyone is scrambling and, you know, trying to figure out what's what and uh, I should, you know, I'm owed this. And when you don't leave a will, how does that 
how can that create stress on the family? There's a lot of ways, probably too many for, for us to get through just on the, on the podcast here. But I would say that the, 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 probably the first uh, ways that it can create stress is it, it really doesn't provide a guide for the family, the heirs, as to what to do with just things. Um, so what happens is things just build up in families over time. And we never really know who wants what. Like, for example, we have three kids, my wife and I. You know, let's say we have a painting on the wall. We've got some books I read, all that. You know, one of my kids might really just like one of those items more than another because of just how it made them feel when they were young, growing up, so on and so forth. So if I don't have everything documented when I pass away as to who I think should get what and who gets this piece of jewelry and mom's wedding ring and all this kind of stuff, there's just a chance that they could just start fighting over it. And we've seen that a lot. You know, the painting on the wall, the, the, the vase, the family heirlooms. Those are actually the things a lot of times that, that cause brothers and sisters not to talk more so than, you know, bank accounts and investment accounts because those are the things that are really emotional. And... Those are the, the, so that's part of, um, you know, I guess the issue that can come up with, with not leaving a will is that it can, it can leave a vacuum as to instruction as to who gets what. And what I often tell our clients is by, by, by leaving this, the, the, the direction in writing through will or trust planning, it doesn't mean that someone's not going to be upset about maybe being left out or being left out over a certain amount or so on and so whatever they feel their grievance is. What it does is it just helps everyone else continue to move on because at least one thing they can't do is bicker and fight and gum up the works. If, if, if you and I were brothers, let's say, and our parents passed and you know they decided to leave you 90% of their estate and me 10%, I could be mad all day, but I can't really stop the, the legal process of you getting that 90 and me getting that 10. What happens if they didn't leave anything now you and I can actually start having a fight in court about who gets what. Is it a, a fair statement to say that, hey, the difference of folks without a will and folks with the will is that folks without a will, they're letting judges and the laws decide how their legacy is distributed. But the person with the will who has thought this through, they allow themselves... Correct. To uh, guide the distribution of their of their legacy. That's hundred yeah, percent. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent correct. Yeah. It's really, and you're right. It's about um, empowering yourself, really, and and to to make those decisions that'll affect your family when you're not here. Um, one thing to say, because you made a very good point about the judges in the system. You know, we often see this and advise on this in blended families. So I'll just give you, you know, a quick example. Let's say that you know, husband and wife come. They have they have kids from two different marriages. And let's say, you know, they have one child together. Well, I'll pick on myself. If I was the father in that example, and I had two kids from a prior marriage, and I had one child with my current wife, for example, with no trust or will planning, the court will, at least in Florida, will do uh, what's called per stirpes. They'll just look at my immediate lineal descendants and just go a third, a third, a third. I may not have wanted it that way, not because I don't love all three of my kids, but let's say... My ex-wife, who I had the first two kids with, you know, married... Has a, a lot of resources. Yeah, maybe she married a business mogul or, you know, an NBA player, someone that they're doing okay financially. And let's say I'm, you know, a regular guy making 50 grand a year. My wife's making 50 grand. 
maybe I would have wanted to have more of the resources go to my current family and the child just because that just makes sense financially. So you're right. The, the court won't start looking into all those details. Okay, well, let's see which family is doing better. And they'll just say, okay, well, when Tunde died, um, who are the three lineal descendants? Okay, these three, boom, they just get it all equally. And what happens too is, let's say my ex-wife, not in that example of the wealth, Let's say she, the reason why she got this divorce is because we had her Baker acted and she has, she's had a history of issues, maybe not to the point where she is you know, in a facility or something, she's legally capable, but she's someone I don't trust with money, let's say. That she's just going to blow through it. Well, if the kids are minors, when I pass away with nothing in writing, and she is their, their legal guardian because they're not age of majority and they can't handle money yet, what happens is the assets that will be left to them by the court are left in basically with the guardian. So what happens is if my goal was not to have my ex-wife have her hands on my assets because I don't trust that she's going to do the right thing with the money. I mean, let's say she had a drug problem. I mean, this, this is the real life stuff that we see, you know, and no matter what the wealth of the family is, there's drugs, you know, something like drug issues happen, you know, in, in high net worth as well as low, low net, net worth families. But if, if she were to have those kind of issues, again, if, if they're not documented in the court and all that, the judge is not going to know that. And the judge will say, okay, well, these two kids belong. So, so 66% of Tunde's estate is going to go to these two kids. Oh, and the guardian is his ex-wife. That's great. And then everyone moves on. Maybe I wanted that money to be there for future education costs, maybe a down payment for the house. And then next thing you know, in a year or two, the money's squandered. So that's, that's another risk that can happen in the event that we don't have um, anything in writing and the courts are making the decisions. Okay, let's talk about student debt. I believe, and in, in, uh, uh, many other folks believe, this is a big bubble. Uh, as you know, tuition is skyrocketing across the country, uh, but wages are, are not keeping up. You know, robots and automation, of course, is going to put more pressure in the future in terms of that gap. Uh, you know, how should folks be thinking about changing culturally or thinking about the value and uh, the ROI from a college degree, meaning that the economics yeah. have dramatically changed, but in a lot of cases, the thinking has not. I think we, meaning you and I specifically, because we're right around the same age, um, I think we're kind of that last generation that we were able to kind of go to school and all that on a, and a, you know, if you had to take out student loans, it was still a decent, maybe you had a $20,000 in debt when you came out, that type of thing. Um, it's amazing. Now I work with, uh, you know, if I work with someone in their mid thirties, that is either a medical doctor or a lawyer. I mean, I'm looking at literally 150,000 to 300,000 in student debt. And what I realized is, I mean, it's a massive drag on someone's life. It's also an economic drag because these are all people that in prior generations, that's the perfect age where you're buying houses or, you're, you're, you know, you're kind of spending, starting to really spend money. And unfortunately, a lot of these professionals that have those, those, those um, advanced degrees aren't able to, um, I guess their money isn't circulating around the economy like it should be. It's going off to pay this massive debt. So... You're right about the potential for a bubble. You're right about, you know, what does it mean? I mean, I've thought about that when I looked at uh, recently a chiropractor who we recently onboarded who has over $300,000 in student debt 
and it's 36 years old, you know, I thought about it and I was thinking, what is that degree really worth, to your point? I mean, could you have made the similar income as a chiropractor not taking that on, on that kind of debt? And that's why there's no perfect answer because I'm not going to sit here and tell people not to go to school. But I do agree that we're probably around some inflection point where people really need to start looking and saying, is it worth me paying $100,000 for an MBA? Like what, what, because I think at this point, MBAs are like bachelor's degrees were 30 years ago. I mean, they're kind of a dime a dozen. When we look at the uh, subprime crisis in uh, 2008 uh, and the buildup to that, the most dangerous debt for society is debt that's easy to get, meaning that people uh, behaviorally get into a lot of trouble when we have easy access to debt. All right. And of course, uh, America uh, and other parts of the world experience a lot of pain uh, from that easiness of, of, of kind of getting a, a mortgage, uh, no documentation loans, 500 FICO score loans. Yeah. Uh, I read about a worker who picked strawberries buying like a $400,000 house in California. <laughs> and, and, and so in this case, the government is holding over a trillion dollars of debt. Uh, in their portfolio. Um, uh, the education department has, uh, uh, at least in 2016, had a 1.2 trillion uh, student loan portfolio. And that excludes, of course, uh, some private student debt. Uh, but because students can get hundreds and hundreds of thousands of student debt without credit or without a job, and so everyone could borrow this money without any credit check. We're not paying enough attention to uh, the risks that are being added, tuition inflation, uh, and uh, the run-up of, of this debt. It sounds like yeah. you know we're, we're, we're going to be facing a crisis pretty soon. And uh, the Wall Street Journal reported uh, that 40% of student borrowers aren't making payments. And this includes... Uh, uh, most of these uh, students have graduated college already. That's 40% student borrowers aren't even making the payments. And we're in a bull market. Yeah. Meaning that, hey, you know, the recession, uh, we're, you know, uh, you're going to have to experience that. What's going to happen with this student debt, this trillion dollars plus of student debt uh, in the next recession or financial crisis? Well, you make a good point about the, uh, I didn't even think of it that way, that we're in a bull market and you've got 40%, according to the Wall Street Journal, of, of student debt not even being paid. So what happens when things are actually bad? Yeah. Um, I said, I'd say this, just to kind of stay on that point really quick, is luckily it's only a trillion dollars. And I know I say only, and it's a T there, and it's a lot of money. But what I mean is, I think at the, we're at this point, there's an economy, we're, we're producing $19 trillion per year in GDP um, in terms of our output. And if you look at We've got a federal deficit or of 20, almost 22 trillion now. Um, we've got a budget deficit now back up to seven, 800 billion. So my point is saying, I'm not saying that lightly. I actually am concerned about the debt all around in our country, but I think this is gonna be a drop in the bucket compared to some other bubbles that could burst, you know, that could have a much bigger effect. So, um, because if you look at the, one trillion, probably, it, you know, there's a lot of it that's performing. People are paying back those notes. So you're probably talking two, three hundred billion that might really be at risk of default. 
And, you know, I would say this, fortunately, our economy is big enough that even if, you know, we had a two, three hundred billion dollar scare, uh, we'd survive it. It wouldn't be like the collapse in 08. Now, I don't think the student debt bubble uh, in itself uh, would collapse the economy. But most likely, if you have a buildup, uh, a massive buildup of the student debt and you don't really have the, the employment support for it and wage support for it, most likely there's other pockets of issues. Yeah. And so when that stuff all comes together, you know, that's when the experts are like, oh, we haven't thought about how yeah, you know, you're all right. this stuff is going to They're all intertwined. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and kind of it's like fingers of instability, almost like yeah. a, what do you call it, like an avalanche, right? It's yeah. one little thing kicks it off. And then 10 minutes later, half the mountain's falling apart. So, yeah. no, I totally, that's that's definitely a possibility. And I think, you know, it, it's even, I think it's what's the way that the last uh, kind of the great recession started, right? It was that little department in AIG somewhere with 400 people that um, were messing around with some of these subprime mortgages and all of a sudden Lehman Brothers collapsing, you know, a year later. So, um, I agree. Now, going back to some of the things that you alluded to, because they're very important, um, one of the issues with student debt versus something like a mortgage and why it's a little bit more of a dangerous type of debt for the system is, is unsecured. Yeah. At least a mortgage is secured by something Good real, point. A, yeah. a hard asset. Um, so that means there's always going to be some level of value there. That's what happened during the financial crisis. All these mortgages went default, all that, but then you had... You know, hedge funds, private equity groups, um, uh, business development companies that could go in there. They bought the debt cheap. They were able to go and re, you know, fix up buildings and, and fix up homes. And eventually the system starts correcting itself because there's still value there. And people start moving back into homes and buildings and you know, wealth starts getting created again. The problem with a student loan is if I default on a student loan, you know, whoever lent me the money really has nothing to gain from it. They're not taking back a piece of property that can be then be uh, resold. So that that can be be a little bit more painful than when uh, there's a default on a hard asset. But a lot of this, and you make a great point in the way you led it into about debt being easy and cheap. So this really gets back to, again, behavioral finance and psychology. I mean, we're all humans creating all of these different things, you know, debt, money, and all. It's all human inventions. So this goes back to there's a, just the way the brain works and brain chemistry, and there is a certain percentage of humans and a large percentage. I mean, it's probably, you know, 35 40% of human beings can't think past 90 days. Like, literally, they're just their brain isn't made up that way. So... When they're being dangled these carrots of easy money and all that, their mind isn't thinking all the way ahead to what is this going to mean in four or five years. Um, or they might be deluding themselves that somehow they're going to be able to pay this off through some scheme. So the point is, is that I think what we saw going into the financial crisis, and this is where I'm going to be very careful on how I say this because I love the capital markets and I own a business in the financial industry. But because of human behavior, that's where I'm a fan of certain types of regulation in the financial industry, like not allowing somebody with a 500 credit score to borrow 100% against the property because they will do that. And the fact they have a 500 credit score means that they don't have the track record to pay it back. 
So in order to keep the system solvent and functioning well without these massive booms and busts all the time, that's where we should continue to promote an environment where people that are responsible have access to credit. People who have shown that they're irresponsible, maybe not so much. And that can only be done if you have a regulatory system for the financial industry that can look out for those kind of risks. But how does that relate to the student debt bubble, though? Well, I would say it. Uh, I don't know where the exact correlation is directly. I would say indirectly, I'm sure they correlate. Meaning, I know that a lot of people can get student loans and have gotten I mean, student loans. Mean, same principle. Correct. Yeah. Like, yeah. And I remember when I was in college. I mean, for Pell Grants and things, I was just signing stuff. And all of a sudden, yeah, I had five grand. You could get grand. an extra check. Yeah. You could get some extra money. And Exactly. And when I was you know, 19, 20, 21 years old, to get an extra $3,000, why not? And I wasn't thinking about when I'm 35, am I going to pay that back or not? So should I have been allowed to do that? Well, looking back, probably not. I mean, I didn't do anything productive with the money. So... That's, so yeah, some I, some <clears throat> uh, some Democrats, uh, probably some Republicans too. I just haven't heard them. You know, they're pushing for free tuition, more free tuition in the the the, the academic landscape in in the United States. And the problem I have with that, and I think free tuition is good in theory. Free tuition is great. You know, if people can get a quality education and not be loaded with a lot of debt, that's great. But knowing American culture, how many students, if you give them the option to go to a free in-state university, get a quality education, but no, I don't want the Honda Accord education. I want the Ferrari. And so even if you know governments provided for free tuition, I see a, a, a significant, uh, possibly a majority, choosing not to go with the free option because they perceive the other alternative, uh, you know, 100, 150K tuition over a four-year school as kind of the bling uh, degree. Like, hey, I'm going to get a better job. I'm going to have more prospects if I go to, you know, the, the more expensive school. Uh, so I'm not just going to think about free. I'm really going to go towards the quality. And then if I can borrow with, without resources, they'll let anybody borrow money. Uh, then I'm just going to go to the, the more elite school. And so I feel like the politicians are, are, can only do so much in terms of, even if you have free tuition, there's a lot of people like, Hey, I don't want to drive a Honda Accord. I want a BMW. There's nothing a politician can do to fix that mindset. Well, I think, you know, I, I do agree that uh, with the way our culture is, you're right, that sometimes the, the things that cost more automatically are perceived to be better. I agree with you that uh, free tuition for everybody probably isn't the answer. And it's just because I'm not a big fan of free stuff because what happens is when people get stuff for free, they don't appreciate it. So I, I'm more... My attitude would be more of if everybody just got free tuition for secondary education, because I, I am a fan of public schools for, you know, K through 12. Um, I think that, that it's important for a society to have, uh, you know, most of its citizens literate and having a general um, knowledge of just basic stuff that we all kind of are educated in a similar way. So we function similarly as a society. However, once you start getting to the university level, I mean, 
I just looked back at myself when I was that age. I wasn't the best student. I wasn't the worst student. I was uh, a regular kid that was not, you know, totally as mature as I am now, of course, when I was 18, 19, 20. Um, and I get the feeling that if I would just had a free university with nothing out of pocket, no cost to my mom and no, no obligation of anything, I might have just, you know, dropped out in the first semester because there's nothing really, you know, there's nothing really holding. I didn't have to earn anything and, 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 and do anything to, to get it. So I think the idea of having some sort of um, commitment to a university, now what does that mean? You know, that could be that you get a free tuition in terms of financially, but you need to serve in the military for four years after or something like that where, you know, you're kind of paying back, whether it's paying back society through service or you're paying back through money. But the idea of just free college for everybody, I don't, I don't see that as a viable answer for educating um, uh, you know, for, for ac accomplishing the educational goals of the country. The other thing I'll say is, you know, kind of looking at this with, with the kind of start with the end in mind mentality. Like, what do we look, I, I would say if I was a politician, I would say, look at it this way. What are we looking at from our society, right? Is it that important that we have everybody getting master's degrees in some, you know, in, in liberal arts or whatever? Or is it important that we just have a population that is occupied, you know, working and gainfully employed. Because I think something that our society and our culture, specifically as Americans, has moved away from um, in the last few decades, definitely my whole life, I've never really seen much of this. But other cultures, when I lived in Australia, they, they did this. And I know in other parts of Europe, they do, they do this a lot, which is apprenticeships. I remember when I lived in Australia in the 90s, they had a system called the university system. Then they had a system called TAFE, which I can't remember what it stands for. But TAFE was basically electricians, plumbers, auto mechanics, like apprenticeships. And there was nothing wrong with that. And guys went and they did two to four years directly out of high school in those systems. And by the time they were 22, they had a plumber's license and they were earning money. And they earned great money. And I've learned since kind of, you know, coming back home to the U.S., going to college and all that, that our university system isn't for everyone. Not everyone wants to just sit in a classroom when they're 20 years old and have to learn about Voltaire and Shakespeare. Some guys are hands-on people and they just want to be under a car or under a hood or they want to be servicing computers. Why not create a, a, a system where right out of high school, kids that don't want to go to college can at least go earn some sort of professional license or designation that they can still you know, earn an income and a living. I mean, it's not just the the higher income uh, parents uh, where my mom, she didn't have a lot of money, but, you know, she didn't want me to go to public school. She always pushed private school and she was willing to come out of her pocket to make sure I go to a Christian private school. And I just think, you know, it, it would be hard to for politicians to do something uh, about that. That's just how the people are thinking. Okay, so let's move to kind of younger professionals. You know, they're out of college for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Hey, I want to start building wealth. I have a job and I want to start building wealth. How should I think about prioritizing things like home ownership, owning stocks, owning bonds, you know, paying for uh, life insurance? How would you kind of think about prioritizing those things 
uh, you know, out of college. You know, the question about a house and all that depends how young the, someone is, but I guess you let's, said let's say out of 20, college. Let's, yeah. say, let's say 24 to 30. Okay, because... You know, I would say things like the home ownership side and all that. I would, I would almost lean more towards, uh, again, where do you see yourself over the next five to ten years in terms of your career, but also geography? Because one thing that we know is that people that are out of college, and I'll say prior to thirty years old, tend to move a bit. So sometimes I would say, don't get bogged down with a house just because you don't want to buy a house, and then in two years the best opportunity comes for your career, and you have to move three states away. Because it just, you know, having the overhead and the burden of a house and having to sell it and maybe the market stuff, you know, that's, that's, that, that might create more headaches than you intended. Um, if one knows that they're going to stay in their city for a long period of time and they're, maybe they're having a family at a young age and they're already settling down in that way, then maybe home ownership maybe makes sense at that age. Okay, so let's say, hey, I plan to stay uh, in this city for three or four years. I'm trying to reconcile yeah. that with... A lot of smart parents, uh, what they'll do is, hey, why would I pay all the money to the dormitory or for you to rent over four years? I, you know, I'm, I, I remember parents buying uh, properties for their students to live in for four years. They can, you know, not a guarantee, but possibly gain from the appreciation. You know, I don't want to give uh, money to a landlord or the school. For four years, uh, yeah. when I can just buy something and possibly get some appreciation. No, well that I mean, look, that uh, let's, every- say, let's let's say uh, four years. Hey, I plan to live in this city, uh, our area for four years. Uh, you know, how would you prioritize those things? I would say this because it's very unique towards this to, to to the geographic location we're talking about. So I'll, I'll give you an example. I was working with a family, their sons uh, at a university in um, in a school in Kentucky. Now, Kentucky is not South Florida in terms of real estate pricing. So what they were looking to do was buy a um, basically a single family home there for one hundred and twenty five thousand so that their son could live there while he's in school. But after he were to graduate, they could rent that house out to other students going forward. So for them, it was really a long term investment, which made sense. It was, I think, two miles from the campus. And the price point made sense, 125000 taxes and insurance in that part of Kentucky were going to be less than $1,000 a year. Now, let's translate that to South Florida. If you were going to have a kid at Florida International University or University of Miami, both schools being within probably 20 minutes of each other down in Miami, you're not buying anything for 125000 in Miami. So you're looking at probably the equivalent home in that part of Miami is going to be Two fifty to three hundred thousand. So at the at a lower or moderate price point, you're saying, that, hey, I would I would really crank up the the home ownership. Well, it's just it's just about what's your level of risk. I guess yeah. you know someone has fifty million dollars in cash laying around, and I guess two hundred fifty thousand is real, but most people don't. So, and 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 what I was going to go with on the Miami side is the carrying cost. You know, in Miami, because we don't have a state income tax, you're going to be looking at about 2% of the purchase price in property taxes. So if you're looking at a $300,000 house, you're looking at about $6,000 a year in taxes. And then the amount of hurricanes and all that stuff we get, you're probably looking at another two to $3,000 a year in insurance. So now you've got carrying costs in Miami of, on a $300,000 property of about eight to 10000 a year. But if you can only get $1,000, you know, let's say 2000 a month for rent at best, you see what I'm saying? Does it, is that the smartest thing financially? Whereas 
if you can get $1,000 a month in rent from the house in Kentucky and you're able to pay cash and you've got you know, just $1,000 a year in carrying costs, yeah, but, that makes sense. But if home ownership is within the range, yeah. uh, uh, you do believe it, it should yeah, be I mean, at the look, top of the list. Owning an asset is always preferable to and, renting the asset. And, and yes. let, me see, let me see this. So I've been reading from the Silicon Valley entrepreneur uh, investment set. Yeah. Know, they're smarter than anybody else. What there's Some of these people, what they're saying is, look, home ownership is for losers, uh, when you calculate the taxes, uh, the maintenance, the fees, you're better off putting your money in a diversified stock portfolio. And I can show you the past returns and prove to you that when you factor in the taxes of real estate, the cost and everything, uh, you know, you're better off putting your money in the stock market. And I, uh, hold yeah. On. Yeah, let, yeah, let me finish. <laughs> and to me, that is ridiculous. Ridiculous. Before, uh, or a little bit uh, after the financial crisis, if you had invested in the stock market, you were looking at dead money, meaning that there was a period where your returns were flat yeah. over a 10-year yeah. period, right? Uh, and one, uh, I think you, I think you, you want to have both, but one underappreciated point about real estate that these Silicon Valley folks uh, who are uh, suggesting this uh, is one underappreciated point with real estate is it's a saving mechanism, meaning that if you're sending a check against your mortgage, obviously a big piece of that is going towards interest. Uh, but if you're paying your mortgage every month, right, you're paying down some principal. Right, you put a down payment on a home, that equity is in the home. So it's a saving mechanism. These Silicon Valley, they may be right, but they're not factoring the behavior of, of, of folks, meaning that a stock portfolio is more liquid, as you yeah. know. Right. And so, hey, I need some money to go on a vacation. I'm gonna sell these shares in Apple and Facebook, meaning that it's 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 much more difficult to pull the money out of the real yeah. estate. And so I think that's underappreciated. I, I think you're right. Um, that goes back to the behavioral finance and some of the stuff we alluded to earlier. I think people um, who have those assets already, like stocks and, and investments out there, um, kind of folks like us don't appreciate um, that mindset that, that the person who can't save and who can't kind of think past a certain period of time. But that's, that's most of most correct. because that, you, look, you, you look at the credit card usage. I agree. That's, kind of that's, most my, of the that's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's why when I talk to most of my peers and people, even my clients, they're like, oh, well, you know, I, I don't understand how someone can do that. But I think you're right, 100%. And I think that's where when I hear this type of thing, like you're saying, the Silicon Valley guys advice and all this, I think what they're doing is they're projecting their own self. And trying to say that everybody should just be like that because you're right. Maybe that's great for that person in Silicon Valley that is earning, uh, you know, a certain amount of income. You also have property values in San Francisco and the Silicon Valley area that are astronomically higher than most of the country. I mean, going back to my example of Kentucky, that is a very affordable area to live and it doesn't have high carrying costs. So um, and to your point about the stock market. I think a, a lot of us give ourselves too much credit for being smart uh, when really we're lucky because you, may, you alluded to something that was very important, which is timing. 
there was. I remember that period because I remember looking at charts of the S and P five hundred when um, the market was bottoming out in two thousand nine, and I think the S and P at one point was equal to where it had been in nineteen ninety seven. Like it was twelve years. Had you like just bought the index? I'm not talking about reinvestment of dividends and all this stuff, but just point to point. 12 years, the market the collapse was so bad that it went right back to where it was. So technically, if, if that's how you're looking at money and you had 12 years, you invested in 97, and let's say you were going to retire in 2009, well, technically, that's bad timing. doesn't mean the stock market's bad. It just means that it didn't work out for you. So the same thing could happen with real estate. And that's where I think that just a diversified approach to it all uh, makes sense. But I do agree with you that for most of us, in our society, owning a home, you know, it's just been proven over again, is the number one way to build wealth. Because to your point, most people have a certain amount they can spend every month. And at least if the bulk of that's going to a mortgage or something that is going to create an asset for you, it makes a lot of sense. And that way, like you said, you can't just decide in two years, you're going to sell a piece of your wall to go on a cruise. But you can decide if you have $200,000 built up in your stock portfolio that you are going to take out ten grand to go on a cruise. Okay. So you're right. That's, yeah. that's, that is a difference. And can you talk about, and I think this, is, uh, this relates to some of this stuff with this new money Silicon Valley crowd that's bashing real estate home ownership. And they're projecting on everybody. Yeah, you know. <laughs> um, but Just like you they don't compare Bitcoin. returns on real estate versus the stock market because we know that smart investors they don't look at just the number return oh it's a 50 percent return versus a 10 percent yeah you're looking at the risk adjusted return can you explain that to the audience well and let me say this because i know when we first got on this um topic of kind of that younger crowd the one thing i don't want to forget that i would recommend for everyone that is working right out of college is max out your 401k. Let's get back to that and I'll, I'll explain why. But to allude to what you just asked, risk adjusted return um, versus kind of just total returns overall. I mean, that's a great point. Let's look at the stock market. We're now, um, today is November 14th. Uh, starting on October 10th, uh, the market started really gyrating. Um, and I think from top to bottom, the NASDAQ went down 14%. And if you look at some of the stocks like Amazon and um, I think Facebook, to a lesser extent Apple, I think they're all down over 20% over the same period. So to your point, the, the market has good, better returns than real estate, but the risk is a lot higher. Real estate's a little more boring, but the risk is a little bit lower. There's no free lunch. In, in yeah. general, in yeah. general. Now, real estate can be risky if you make a bad real estate investment. But um, I'm just saying in broad generalities, just like a savings account, right, has the one of the worst returns. It's, real estate <laughs> generally is a lot safer than holding Facebook. Yeah. Than holding... Well, and uh, here's yeah. something <laughs> else that I'll get to besides yeah. safety and returns. Here's where I do advise a lot when it comes to real estate. The tax benefits. Remember, let's not forget the use of the tax code as almost an investment vehicle. I mean, yeah. if you look at, I mean, we advise clients to do that regularly. Uh, if they have a little bit of, um, you know, if they have the means to do it, to buy investment properties, for example. Why? Because you can do things like use accelerated depreciation. You can write off certain expenses. 
You can, depending on if you're actually incorporated as a real estate business, if you own several properties, you can start writing off your gas mileage for driving to look around and collect rents. You can write off your cell phone because you're taking calls, you know, from tenants and you're using that to manage your business. So there's a lot of creative ways through the tax code um, that real estate provides us that can offset other things that might be generating income. So, for example, I might buy an investment property, um, depreciate it, but because of the depreciation on my real estate, I, it offsets income tax that I might pay from an investment I made in the stock market or a capital gains tax or, or just my regular income from working. So that's an example of, you know, if, if someone just had hypothetically a hundred grand laying around per se, and you ask me, okay, what makes sense? And you know, I'm not going to create a fake case here, but let's just say it made sense for them to buy the real estate, maybe because they ha they're a high income earner, it makes more sense. We're actually going to put more money back in that person's pocket through the long-term growth of real estate. Plus, because of the depreciation, if they're earning a high income on the other side, they're not paying taxes on that income. Versus if we put that hundred grand in the stock market, well, if it went up 10% in a year, okay, great, we made 10 grand, but we didn't offset income tax and other things that, that, that real estate provides. Uh, before we uh, move on, I uh, just want to tighten up how to look at a risk-adjusted return, where if you see somebody and they say, man, you know, you'll get better returns uh, in the S&P 500 or in stocks than real estate. Uh, so let's say stocks give you four times the return as real estate, mm -hmm. right? So the right way to think about it, it may give you four times the return of real estate, but it could be 20 times the risk are 15 times the risk. And so that's what we mean when we talk about a risk-adjusted return. Are you being compensated for the risk you're taking? I'd say in our industry, the measure to look at would be what's called standard deviation. Um, the standard deviation of a portfolio, an individual security, or even something like real estate can be measured. Um, normally in the investment world, they go back you know, one year, three year, and five year standard deviation. So what does that mean? Let's just say hypothetically, over the last five years, the stock market has averaged 10% annual return, but it's had a standard deviation of eight. That tells us it's a broad way of measuring risk because that tells us that over that five years, the market has deviated 8% up from the average. So the high point was 18% or 8% below the average. So the low point would have been um, uh, 2%. So it's a, it's a quick way to say, okay, I could average a 10% return in that investment, but I'd be watching maybe my portfolio swing between two and 18%. Again, that goes back to someone's emotional say. Some people can take those kind of swings, some people can't. Now, I might look at a similar investment in a real estate portfolio, let's say, and maybe we've had a good run in real estate in Florida, you know, in the last few years, maybe the real estate portfolio has averaged 8% return, but the standard deviation is two. So that means over the last five years, the real estate has returned anywhere between 10, as high as 10% and as low as 
averaging eight. And it's a good point or question you're asking because that gives us a, a comparison of risk adjuster returns. Because just looking at the rate of return of eight and 10%, someone might just jump at the 10. But once you know someone like me sits down and explain, okay, this maybe have, has a better track record, but look at the experience it takes to get there, you know, this large swings, that'll allow them to say, okay, well, maybe, you know, maybe I'm comfortable with that. Maybe I'm better off with real estate because it's more of a tighter, narrower standard deviation. I, 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 I can kind of predict a little bit more where I see things going. Also, I think liquidation and time frame are important in that discussion because, again, for my legal disclaimer, past results are no, you know, predictor of future results, but let's assume that the next five years look exactly the same as the last five years in my example of the market having a 10% average return and, a, and an 8% standard deviation. Well, if you are sitting across from me and you were saying, Tunde, you know, I want to invest this money, but I want to pull the money out to go buy a condo or something else in two years, that's where, again, we could look and say, I could say, okay, Jamarlin, I know that we think we can average 10% over the next five years, but knowing that we have these massive swings, you may have to be prepared that if you if you tell me in two years you need the money, it might be one of those negative standard deviation periods where you know we're we're not making the return we thought we were going to make. We're making a two instead of a ten percent, and that's so that's where timing comes into play. Because if you told me Tunde, I have twenty years to worry about this money and we can just invest in the market, that's when things like standard deviation and all that they tighten over time and they become less of a concern the longer you have. You know, I've heard this from uh, quite a few folks uh, and they'll say that uh, our people, uh, African-Americans, don't really have life insurance uh, in that we have, you know, we're not thinking right about life insurance and the benefits. Uh, and there's, there's a big disparity but uh, professors, uh, uh, Timothy Harris and Aaron Yellowitz, they came out with a study this year uh, where when they adjusted uh, for income and education, they said that African-Americans have more life insurance, not less than, than, uh, than whites. Uh, they said 2% more when they adjusted for those uh, factors uh, are, would you be surprised uh, at that? Or uh, kind um, of, were you with the consensus is that hey, you know, African Americans, uh, you know, we need to step up our game in terms of how we're thinking about life insurance. We don't have enough of it. Um, I would say this. Uh, I'd say a bit of yes and no. So um, I'm not surprised when you adjust it for things like income and education because I think that's just a human thing. Once you, you know, you've got some means and you start getting educated, you realize the risks that are out there and you have more to protect, more of a reason to protect those risks. Uh, so obviously life insurance is a, is a risk um, um, play. You know, you're, you're, you're protecting against the risk of premature death. So that part doesn't surprise me. Um, what, I, what, I say, what I would say that, um, that, that I am not surprised about, I guess, is not on a risk-adjusted return that African-Americans own life insurance. Oh, no, sorry, not risk-adjusted, but not adjusted for those factors you mentioned that, uh, that, that African-Americans um, have less life insurance. And again, without getting too kind of far in the weeds with some of this stuff, you know, a lot of this just has to do with history. I saw this early in my career. Um, I started my career in 2001. 
So at that point, someone that was 70 years old, maybe, or even 80 years old was born in the 20s. Uh, so dealing with that generation and how they related to money was much different than dealing with someone maybe born in the 50s and 60s and later. And that's just because the history of our country, um, you know, there were things like redlining. Um, I know that uh, African-Americans weren't allowed up until probably the 1960s to own more than $10,000 of life insurance. So there were actual legal impediments that were promoted by the, you know, the U.S. government. I mean, FHA uh, promoted redlining uh, in, in neighborhoods in America for so, decades. So the government so, was involved in kind of, hey, we don't want these people to get life insurance. The U.S. government. Well, that's it, a shock. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's just the way our country was. I mean, it, you yeah. know, none of us should be uh, surprised at any of this history. I mean, I guess, uh, fortunately for us, um, we're starting to get f further removed from that. But... Um, but I, so I think that a lot of it, and, and we see this with a lot of things in our society, you know, culture takes a long time to change. So you have a culture, I mean, let's really take it back, right? I mean, slavery ended in the 18, 18, 1865. You had reconstruction for a couple of decades. That went backwards in the South with Jim Crow. So what happens is you had a couple of generations of black people in this country that just were not allowed to participate in the system at all. So until the 60s, when legally the participation was allowed again. So that's why in our communities, you see huge uh, disparities in terms of how money is approached based on, honestly, when people were born. The older generation um, doesn't have the exposure to financial literacy and other things that maybe someone who's 25 today does. It looks like th this study that said that uh, African-Americans own more life insurance when you account for uh, income and uh, education, uh, those, uh, those factors, they say that uh, more than 12% of African-American males who reach age 50 die within 10 years, double the rate in the entire population. And so uh, my understanding is that the life insurance companies, they can't factor in race. Uh, they've had a history, a discriminatory history. And so the laws prevent them from using race as a variable and they have to charge people the same rates, right? So it, it's, it's highly regulated now because of the discrimination and racism in that industry. But when I read this and say that, hey, we die a lot faster. When you look at the race, we die a lot faster. It sounds like if the life insurance companies are forced the price of the stuff the same, that we actually have an advantage, meaning that we may be getting hidden advantage, uh, a, a, a big hidden advantage when we buy our policies because statistically show that we die a lot faster, but they cannot use that in their risk models yeah. because of the past discrimination. Well, that's an interesting way to look at it. I, I never thought of it that way. I think that because I think in our, you know, unfortunately in our country, we tend to draw things so much just on like literally color lines, like race. Um, again, living in South Florida has been an interesting experience because if you look at it, you know, I was always uh, just kind of exposed to, you know, African-American as, as, as a black Americans in a sense, but living in South Florida now for 20 years, I've learned, you know, that there's Haitians and Jamaicans and people from Brazil that are black and so on and so forth. So do they die at the same rate as African-Americans after 50? I don't think so. I think a lot of it goes back to 
lifestyle, um, socioeconomic status, and the ability of access to good food and good medical care, honestly. So is that something that an insurance company, is it really a racial thing or is it, again, more of a socioeconomic thing in our country that unfortunately just kind of the way that our country just is for a fact is that more people that are on the bottom end of that socioeconomic ladder statistically have been unfortunately african-americans so it might be reflected in those statistics but from an actual genetic is what i'm getting at like if you look at someone's dna in their bloodstream and that's where the 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 life insurance companies you know they they remember they're doing a blood and urine i don't test. think it's dna yeah. but no, i don't I mean, either that's yeah, kind of my I'm point saying like hey you guys like to eat soul food. You guys, <laughs> I mean, you, know, you, oh, you make you, a good you, point. You, you guys have a lot of stresses in the society uh, in terms of, you know, uh, you, on the job and financial pressures. You know, there's a lot of different factors, but if the data says die faster. And let's say even if you account for uh, education and income, uh, it just sounds like there's an advantage there yeah, no, uh, right. to use the past discrimination against the life insurance. Company. No, I, yeah. I, I agree. There's an advantage. If you look at it from that perspective, I would say similarly, because I saw a very interesting article where the life insurance industry is trying to get access that what they'd love to do more than anything else, you know, from the underwriting perspective, which I can understand from their perspective is getting access to the information from these DNA companies that, you know, everyone's been using, you know, 23andMe, Ancestry.com, things like that. Because when, when you're doing your DNA test to find your heritage, there's a lot of good information about health and all that kind of stuff. So I would, I would put it as a similar example to that, that if I got an Ancestry.com result back and it said that I'm susceptible to this type of cancer or this type of whatever, Technically, a life insurance company right now in the way the regulations are, they can't get that information from that company. So, you know, I mean, you, lying on a life insurance policy is against the law. I mean, it's a material misstatement. But if, but if I had a policy I just got last week and then, you know, a week from now I get back my ancestry.com information and it says I'm susceptible to this and that type of cancer, but I came back as a preferred non-smoker on my life insurance thing, it's kind of a similar thing. Like I got away with a standardized underwriting, but my individual position means that I'm probably better off having this life insurance because I might have a shorter life expectancy. Okay. Can you quickly uh, share with the audience the difference between whole and term uh, life insurance? Just really quick in very elementary terms. Okay. That's hard for me to do quickly. Okay. <laughs> no, but okay. I'm just joking because yeah. now you're getting into stuff that I do for a living. So it could go on. But no, but to be quick, uh, there's a way in the industry that, uh, you know, we've, we've learned to explain it. So think of term insurance. It's exactly like it sounds. You own it for a certain stated term, a period of time. So it's like leasing or renting. Generally, terms are for, you know, offered at 10, 20, and 30-year blocks. There are one-year terms or a five-year term, but those are less common. So imagine, I'll just pick on the one in the middle, which is 20-year term. So imagine I'm just renting insurance for 20 years. I'm paying a premium, no different than if I'm paying premium on uh, for auto insurance, car insurance, or homeowner's insurance, meaning if I get in a car accident, my auto insurance... You know, yeah. it does something. It pays so, out. So to help so, people who are who are not ex, you know not familiar with life insurance, 
you're saying like, hey, this may help you think about it if you compare it to car insurance, at least the correct, correct. At least the term. So meaning, yeah. meaning that something has to trigger in in order for the insurance to pay out. So in a car insurance example, it's getting a car accident or something happened in my car. And the term insurance is basically I have to die. <laughs> so unfortunately, yeah. it's a little more morbid. But um, but the thing is, is that um, just like with auto insurance, if you had a twenty year term. And I either missed premium payments during that period, or let's say my my contract anniversary was today, November fourteenth, and I pass away on November sixteenth. God forbid, twenty year, you know, after the twentieth anniversary of the policy, then my family gets nothing. The policy no longer really exists. It doesn't pay out. Just like if I missed my car insurance premium and then I got into a car accident and I'm no longer covered, then you know the insurance company is just not going to pay. So that's why we, we kind of equate it to renting because it's like you're renting an apartment for 20 years. Once you give the keys back to the landlord, you, you, you don't really have anything. You didn't build equity. You, didn't do, you don't have anything to show for it. Whole life on the other um, uh, hand, and also there's another type called universal life. But to stick on the topic at hand, whole life is what we call permanent insurance. Unlike term whole life most whole lives now are designed to last past age 100 the original whole lives from 100 plus years ago were usually designed to last to age 100 so the idea is that it covers you for your whole life uh so for that reason they're priced a little bit differently because the industry on average pays out about two percent of term policies 98 percent of policies usually um the person lives past the term so like I own term insurance. I bought my first block of term insurance when I was 32. It was a 20-year term. There's a high probability I'll be alive past 52. So the insurance companies can price that in. And what happens is they can price term very inexpensively. So it's a great way for a young person, let's say, to start owning life insurance. So generally, you know, if you're in your 20, 20s and 30s, oh, it's dirt you, you, usually, I mean, you usually want to go with term. I've done, um, I mean, just for like, some of our families, when they're children, you know, we're doing some planning for them if they're getting married in their 20s. I mean, I've, I've run like 20-year terms on some people in their 20s where it's literally like $600 a year for a million dollars of coverage. I mean, it's it's so cheap that you know, uh, I just so, tell them you might as well get it because uh, one day you'll have kids. Re repeat and, the, the kind of pricing that you're seeing. Yeah, the this, the price <laughs> definitely, again, for the, the legal and compliance folks out there, um, this is just top of the top of the uh, back of the napkin math. But... I've seen definitely stuff for under $1,000 in term insurance for people in their 20s when you're talking about seven figures, you know, let's say a million dollars in coverage. So what I've told them is, you know, this is so cheap. $1,000. Yeah, or $800 a year, $600, okay, a year. you know, depending, yeah. you know, yeah. remember, this is preferred rating, you know, depending on where they're at. I mean, obviously someone 24 is going to be slightly different than when someone you see 29. Ads on, I see ads online uh, sometimes and it'll be like $50 a month. Yeah. Uh, that that is well. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, those are kind of teasers when you look at it. I mean, they'll say you know a forty year old can get half a million dollars for under this a month. Uh, that and you look at the fine print. That's usually a ten year term at a super preferred rating. I mean, you know, because you gotta you gotta check a lot of boxes off to get that rate. But I mean, if someone can check them off, then they'll get that rate. It's a very put it this way: term insurance is great. It's a very inexpensive way to leverage money. Let's, let's call insurance what it is. You're leveraging a risk. Again, if I want to get car insurance, I'm leveraging the risk that if I total my car for a little bit of premium, I can now get the value and have a whole new car. 
you know, if I if I have homeowners insurance and the hurricane blows my house away, I paid a little bit of premium. I'm getting hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of dollars to build a new home from a company. So life insurance is no different. I'm paying a little bit in premium that in the event I pass away, my family or whoever I wanted to leave as a beneficiary gets this boatload of money. How fucked up is this person's priorities if they have an iPhone XS that costs over $1,000 and they have a BMW but no life insurance? In terms of on the scale it's, it's, of like, hey, my priorities are messed up. One, it's two. as messed up as Snoop Dogg's comment about not having a will. I mean, how messed up yeah. is it for a guy that's clearly, you know, worth probably eight or nine figures at least to not have a will that would cost him probably less than $20,000 with the right law firm. So, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's the same type of mentality. I think a lot of it honestly is ignorance. If people were educated about what all this stuff really means and how it could help their families and all that, I think they probably would choose a different path, but because they haven't, and I, I don't bash any of their own advisory team because I've had people in my circle like this too, where you're trying to explain the right thing to them. They just don't want to listen. There's not in a place at that moment in life, but let's finish off real quick on the whole life side. I don't want to forget that because just that the main difference on whole life being permanent insurance is there's also a cash value component. So there's, there's, um, I'll give you an example. I, I showed a 39 year old yesterday. That's why this is fresh in my head with one insurance company at a preferred rating for $2 million of 20 year term. It was going to cost $1,700 a year, but for $300,000 at the same preferred rating of whole life insurance, it was going to be $10,000 a year in premium. Now that's a huge difference. And someone would say, well, why would you spend 10 grand on a $300,000 of death benefit when you can buy 2 million for 1,700? And again, there's not, not necessarily that one's better than the other. They just both work different ways and one needs to be educated as to how, what the benefits, pros and cons are. Clearly, if it's someone that's just on a certain type of budget and their main goal is protecting their family the best they can, term makes all the sense in the world in that example. But the reason why we were considering the whole life for this gentleman is he's, he's got some entrepreneurial stuff going on. Um, life insurance, whole life insurance, and when you're building up cash value, can offer several great benefits. One is asset protection. Uh, in the state of Florida, and many other states as well, but definitely the state of Florida, there's a statute um, uh, by the Florida House, and that... Uh, says that all life insurance and annuity cash value, with this conversation about life insurance, is 100% exempt from creditors. So bankruptcy, um, you know, litigation, all that is protected. Now, that's not if you're shoving money into life insurance after you've committed a crime. I mean, there's still, there's still ways that, you know, I want to be very clear about that. But, but in normal circumstances, if someone were to be funding a life insurance policy for 10, 15, 20 years, they got a million dollars in cash, and then, you know, someone sues them for something random, by Florida statute, that money cannot be touched. So that's one reason why people find value in cash value life insurance. The other is, as far as whole life, uh, the company we were looking at yesterday, um, their current dividend rate is 5.4%. Uh, I think the 10-year treasury right now is around 3%, and the Fed fund rate is 1.9 maybe or 1.75, I think. So in any case, the dividend rates 
at least over the last 20 years, if not traditionally longer, of whole life companies on average, you know, because they're like every other type of institution. Some pay more, some pay don't. But the dividends are highly competitive um, in terms of what other alternatives out there that are considered safe. Because remember, whole life insurance is considered a safe or a safer investment vehicle if one's looking to so, go cash. So explain that. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the person decides to get whole life insurance and it has value whether you die or not. Correct. So that's uh, building but, the equity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So but uh, can you explain uh, to the audience kind of how are they receiving their dividends? They're receiving it. Normally, it's annually. Most companies just pay one dividend annually and they pay it into the policy cash value. So you, you, it's almost like if, if it was an investment account, it's like getting a dividend on your stock. It just okay, goes into it. the account, it just kind of mixes back in with the cash. Um, there's all kind of different ways that that cat can be skinned. Some, some dividends can go to buy and pay for buying more life insurance. So your death benefit actually grows over the years. Some don't, they go for, you know, they can cover other things. So that's a little bit, you know, separate, but going back to this, the 30,000 foot, um, angle of the conversation, that's why whole life and cash value insurance in general, unlike term is not seen as renting. So just like I said, a 20-year term is like renting an apartment for 20 years. After the 20 years, you turn in the key and you don't have anything to show. In the cash value example in whole life, it's almost like buying a home. You're building equity. That's the cash value. So in 20 years, you may be able to stop paying the premiums, but you've got a, a basket, a bucket of money basically in that policy. And the, and the reason why you may be able to stop paying the premiums if the, if the policy is designed the right way is because the dividends are, are large enough to cover the annual cost of insurance inside the policy. So you no longer have to pay out of pocket. Okay, got it. So if I understand you correctly, whole life insurance is going to weave together asset protection, investment, savings, life insurance all in and so there's a there's a couple more areas that I'll, I'll add in there tax benefits so um want to be careful how i say this it's life insurance first i always say that it's not the cheapest investment it's not the best place to just get a rate of return high rate of return you're never going to get 30 percent a year in a life insurance policy it's going to be nice and boring like the tortoise not the hare now what it, what it can create is similar to a Roth IRA. That's why I want to be very careful how I'm explaining this. You put money into a life insurance policy after tax. The money grows tax deferred. So you're not paying under normal circumstances because there, there is a way that a life insurance policy can be taxable. It's called a modified endowment contract, but that's now starting to get too much into the weeds. So under normal circumstances, you're not paying taxes on those dividends as your um, funds grow. So, for example, and that's why a lot of high net worth people like life insurance as an asset class, because I have clients that have seven figures in cash value in their life insurance policies. And what happens is, let's say you have $2 million in cash value in a whole life policy, and you're going to earn 6% as a dividend this year. Well, that's $120,000 in dividend income. The top tax bracket is 37%. So if that was 6% paid on a bond portfolio, let's just say hypothetically that was in a non-retirement account, just kind of someone had at a brokerage firm, that income 
from that interest or dividend would be added to the person's overall income for that tax year. So if that person was, let's say, a doctor or you know, a professional executive somewhere, and they were already earning, you know, two, three, four hundred thousand a year, now they just had another hundred twenty thousand dump on top of that. They're going to be paying a lot of taxes on that. So having that type of income inside of a life insurance chassis avoids that current year taxation. The other advantage of life insurance then is one can be, if one is operating the policy properly, can be strategic and pull money out of the policy in a tax-free way through loans up to basis. And then once you're returning your own principal, you're not paying taxes on that. So what happens is one of the things I talked about with the gentleman yesterday was in projecting out his whole life, if he keeps it for, let's say, the next 15, 20 years, he could do a concept which is called bank on yourself. People that have accumulated a lot of cash in their life insurance can borrow from the insurance policy to do something else with the money. So, for example, we talked about, you know, down the road, he might be able to borrow, let's say, $100,000 from his policy, use that as a down payment, let's say, on a piece of real estate. He can rent that out and have the tenant basically paying back his life insurance cash value. That's a way to basically become your own bank. So a lot of wealthy people end up using those kind of tools and techniques because, like I said, uh, the example of someone had $2 million in their life insurance policy, now that's a lot more you can borrow and do something against, and you're not going to a bank, you're not having to get qualified, you're not getting your credit affected, you don't have to wait two, three months to close the deal and all that. You can just immediately move borrow the money and have then slowly pay back your policy. And a lot of policies are designed where I don't want to say you don't have to pay them back because the purpose of a loan is to pay it back, but the dividends may be um, credited in a way that the dividends pay the interest of your loan. So that's why they, you know, that's where you start getting into the nuances of kind of life insurance. I want to go back to wills. So the scenario is the person is 30. Their situation is pretty straightforward. You know, they have maybe one or two kids. Let's say the, the, the couple uh, is making 75K each. They have investments, a small amount of investment. Uh, but hey, we want to do some uh, financial planning and develop a will. How much, what range of cost uh, can they expect in terms of what type of investment? To someone that straightforward, I mean, they, they can probably at least get some sort of basic protection through something like a legal Zoom, which might be three dollars $500. So you're saying um, like it could be okay, depending on your budget, to just use a template to get started? Sure, I mean, that's because think about it this way. I, I, I don't recommend that to my clients because they're a little bit more complex than the example yeah. you gave. But remember, something's better than nothing, meaning... Even if it's a boilerplate, template, cookie cutter, but if you're incapacitated and you show up in a hospital, a healthcare directive is a healthcare directive. So at least it'll give someone authority to make decisions on your behalf in that example or a power of attorney. I'm just talking in the example you made yeah. of a young couple that's 30 years old, kind of just you know where they're at. Just having that basic protection makes sense. A starter will, yeah. Yeah. Now, the other thing which is interesting, and I think I did this early in my career when I was young and and I was working at a big corporation, a lot of big companies, if, the, if you're 30 and you're working for a large corporation through your group benefits, you might have some sort of prepaid legal. So what happens is, I remember in my example, I think they 
paid up to $500 or something, the group benefit, towards a local attorney that was part of the, the prepaid legal network for me to go get the will done. And I think they just did it for that price. So it really it didn't cost me anything out of pocket. So for young people that are in a, you know, in, a, in a big company that might have prepaid legal, that's something else to look at. But now if you're looking at generally going to an attorney to do this, a private attorney or an attorney at a law firm, um, and I would say this for where we are in South Florida. I'm not, you know, I know that pricing can be different in different uh, areas of the country. But in South Florida, for that type of client, I mean, I, you're probably looking at anywhere from maybe $1,000 to $2,500 for just a basic wills. You start adding trust in there, you might add an extra 1000 So now you're maybe looking between two and $3,500 um, for that type of work. And, you know, I, I highly recommend people sitting with an estate planning attorney, though, to do this. Don't be cheap. I've seen too many bad examples of people being cheap and it costing their families a lot more than what they would have spent on the attorneys. And also make sure that one goes to an estate planning attorney. Not my cousin who's a real estate lawyer and who's going to do our wills on the side because they're a lawyer. Or not my auntie who's, you know, a contract lawyer who does insurance defense. And now because she's a lawyer, she's going to do our wills. There's always holes in that. You want somebody that does... Specialized. Yeah, yeah, estate planning. That's just like... I don't want my estate planning attorney showing up to my real estate closing. You know, I want yeah. a real estate attorney showing up for that. Uh, if someone wants to contact you uh, about your advisory practice, uh, how can they reach you? Best way is uh, our email. Um, I'd say our office line is 954-453-7919, and our receptionist will, will, will direct traffic from there. Um, but our website is www axialfamilyadvisors.com A-X-I-A-L Family Advisors ending in O-R-S dot com axialfamilyadvisors.com and we have all our contact information there. Yeah, I want to thank uh, Tunday for coming on the show and dropping knowledge. Appreciate it. Let's go. Appreciate it. Thanks everybody for listening to Go. You could check me out at Jamal and Martin on Twitter and also come check us out at mogulden.com that's M-O-G-U-L dom.com be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter you can get the latest information on crypto tech economic empowerment and politics let's go